Hello, I'm Alec Avdokov, and welcome to the life and times of Frederick the Great. Before I begin this episode, I must do a small introduction and reminder regarding my situation with my podcast. Nobody has yet gotten onto my Patreon account, and I cannot stress harder that without your support, yes, you listening right now, I will not be able to continue past five hours of content. I will do my best to continue without that support, but if you want more quality content from me about King Frederick the Great in Prussia, then I shall have to receive your support financially. Another aspect that will change over the next episode is that they are going to come out as bi-weekly episodes. This change is due to the fact that I am going to have a summer class. This is going to be a class on the history of music from the ancient to the Baroque periods of music. This is most likely going to help with my knowledge about King Frederick the Great, considering he composed music in the Baroque era. However, I will need to devote more time to my studies and less to this podcast. Again, I would like to thank you all for the support I keep receiving and I would not be continuing on if I did not get the same support I have from you all. Now, on to the show. Last time I left you was when Frederick Wilhelm, the great elector, won against the Swedes in the field of battle with the Allies, and lost the peace to the French, which is run at this point by Louis Fourteenth. Something I neglected to tell you while I was so caught up with talking about European politics at the time, especially the Second Northern War, was how the Brandenburger army managed to expand as rapidly as they did. After all, the land was poor and severely depopulated after the Thirty Years' War. A major factor for the new rise of the Brandenburger army was the General War Commission, or the Generalkriegskommissariat. This is a major advance in the history of standing armies. The Generalkriegskommissariat, according to Margaret Shannon in The Rise of Brandenburg, Prussia, was therefore ultimately responsible for the recruitment, training, billeting, equipment, and supplies of the armed forces, and for raising the financial levies needed to pay and maintain them. In order to deal with this last important matter, a separate war treasury, Generalkriegskasse, was set up in 1674 to handle foreign subsidies and subsequently to deal with all forms of taxation. Now, we are further seeing Frederick the Great's legacy being played out as I speak. Prussia is going to have one of the the most efficiently run governmental bureaucracies in the world. This is in part due to the foundation of these systems in Frederick Wilhelm's reign, and its continuation and improvement under successive rulers. As we could see with all the wars that the United States has gotten itself into, standing armies cost a lot of money, and eats a lot into the budget of the state. While the U.S. decided to lower taxes under George W. Bush to stimulate consumer spending in the Afghan and Iraq wars, Frederick Wilhelm made the much more prudent decision of raising taxes on the nobility and restructuring his tax system. Now, I know that taxes are very boring, but they are extremely important to the wealth and power of a nation. 
The power of a nation is directly tied to how many soldiers they can put into the field, how prosperous the people are, and the overall standing and sovereignty of the state. Therefore, I will go into the tax system for a little bit just to give background, and then I will go back into the much more fun political situation of the second half of Frederick Wilhelm's reign. In the 1650s, as Frederick Wilhelm was going into the second decade of his reign, he started to tax new things, such as stamps and the movement of goods within his realm. See, this also goes back to Frederick Wilhelm's Dutch education. He believed, fairly accurately, that the wealth of a nation was based on trade and commerce. He even had commercial treaties for a merchant navy for Brandenburg that did not yet exist. And he would eventually have a colonial fort in the west coast of Africa called Großfriedrichsburg. Yet, as we can see today, taxing the rich tends to piss off the rich, and there were many protests in the Landtäger, or the councils of nobles that were across his realm. Back in those days, before nationalism was a thing, nobles simply had a self-interest in their particular region. Nobles from Prussia did not see their fate tied with that of Brandenburg, even though they were ruled by the same person. There was no unifying idea of nationhood, and therefore when the elector wanted to tax Prussian nobles, he met severe opposition. Prussia, and specifically the city of Königsberg, was in fact the main source of noble opposition to the centralization of the Hohenzollern state. According to the book The Iron Kingdom by Christopher Clark, the issue was essentially one of perspective. Again and again, Frederick Wilhelm had to make the case that the estates and the regions they represented should see themselves as part of a single whole and thus bound to collaborate in the maintenance of the defense of all the sovereign's lands and the pursuit of his legitimate territorial claims. But this way of seeing things was completely alien to the estates, who viewed their respective territories as discrete constitutional parcels bound vertically to the person of the elector, but not horizontally to each other. This meant that the nobles viewed some of the elector's domains as foreign territory instead of being a part of a single nation. The situation between the estates, or nobles, and the elector got so bad that there was even a political execution in 1672. This was no laughing matter. Another important step towards the modernization of the state by elector Friedrich Wilhelm was that he encouraged immigration, many of them French Protestants, or the Huguenot. This immigration policy was due to the depopulation from the Thirty Years' War and to receive more labor in the country and therefore a higher population that he could tax. This higher tax base would mean further revenue and recruits for his army. The elector wanted to have the most efficiently run state as possible, and he brought in foreign experts that brought in the best practices of other states at the time. This would also carry over to Frederick the Great. Frederick wanted to have the best men in places of power, and many of them were foreign experts, especially from France. We will eventually get to Frederick's obsession with France. Speaking of France, Louis XIV of France finally obtained royal power in 1661, and this is the fun part of the show 
where I get to talk about the battles and the backstabbing that Frederick Wilhelm did during the second half of his reign. Thank you for bearing with me with the boring tax and economic policies of the great elector, a title which I shall soon get to. Now, back to the political situation of Europe. Now, when Louis XIV gained power, he had the most powerful kingdom in Europe. He became the boogeyman of Europe in the second half of the 17th century. In 1667 through 68, Louis took over the Spanish Netherlands, today Belgium, with dizzying speed. And because of this demonstration of power, Frederick Wilhelm was all like, heck no, I ain't fighting that. And he declared non-aggression with France. But eventually, when Louis started butting his head against the Dutch and started to win, Frederick Wilhelm realized that his territory on the Rhine was under threat and switched sides with the Dutch. This backfired when he couldn't coordinate with Emperor Leopold and he signed a treaty with the French to switch sides again in 1672. However, when Leopold, the Habsburg Emperor, started making progress in 1674, he joined the Emperor again and switched sides. I'm not going to have a quiz on this later to make you remember when and how many times Frederick Wilhelm switched sides. I just want you to envisage a pendulum going back and forth as long as the time continues. This is Schaukelpolitik. However, this time when Frederick Wilhelm switched sides, Louis called on Sweden to attack Brandenburg while Frederick's army was in the Rhineland. This is about 300 miles away from Brandenburg as the crow flies. The Swedes were doing the same old rampaging and looting that they were doing in the Thirty Years' War, but this time, Brandenburg could do something about it. All the taxing, all the army training, all the conflicts with the nobles would culminate with this conflict against the Swedes. Would he do better than his father? Let's find out. When the Swedes were trudging through the swampy sands that was Brandenburg, Frederick Wilhelm's army was marching 100 kilometers a week, or nearly 9 miles a day, which was a huge deal at the time of slow-moving armies. Now, to quote Margaret Shannon again, After negotiating support with the Emperor, Denmark, and the Dutch against Sweden, he brought his army of 15,000 men back to the Elbe, from where he launched a surprise attack on the Swedish base at Rathenau on the Havel. These were not the same pushovers that the Swedes walked over in the 1630s. No, the army of Brandenburg was on the leading edge of military development. They used the drill exercise in the, of the Dutch and the best practices of the French, Swedish, and Imperial militaries. They got rid of the matchlock guns that were hard to carry and used the much more maneuverable flintlock muskets. They also got rid of pikeman squares because they were vulnerable to cannon fire. And what's more, the Brandenburg army had high discipline and was fighting on their own turf. Frederick Wilhelm said before the battle to his subjects, Cut down all Swedes wherever they can lay their hands upon them and break their necks and give no quarter. This would be a fight to the death. The Swedish army then retreated 
and both sides met before the little town of Fairbelin. This battle would define Frederick Wilhelm's legacy. I'm going to quote myself from the second episode to describe the layout of the land. It's an early morning summer. Your feet are soaking wet. You have been walking in the sand for the past week and through bogs that go up to your neck. Imagine a haunted swamp in which the fog is all around you and you can hardly see five feet in front of you. The tree you hold on to for balance is covered in moss, so you wipe your hands from the gunk, but it sticks to your hands. Your feet are all pruny from the wet sand you walk through, and now you're starting to get a foot fungus commonly known as trench foot. Thank you, me. You're welcome, me. Brandenburg is a flat land that has hardly any hills. So, anywhere that there is an incline gives a huge military advantage to the side that takes it. Therefore, when the army of Brandenburg, numbered 6,000, faced off against the Swedish army of 11,000, it had an advantage when they found a small sandhill and put their 13 cannons there. In the morning, there was a ton of fog. This was thicker than peanut butter. Don't you mean pea soup, Alec? No! I mean peanut butter, because that's something I actually like. Anyway, sorry. Anyway, the battle began when the Swedish cavalry, or horse troop, contested the control of the sand hill when the Brandenburgers began bombarding the Swedish soldiers with cannonballs. There were many charges and countercharges on the sand hill between the Swedish and Brandenburger cavalries until eventually the Swedes broke and fled the field. This left the Swedish infantry exposed to artillery fire as well as cavalry charges, and they fled back into the village of Fairbelin. In other words, Frederick Wilhelm's army kicked the pants off the Swedes. Yes! Although, that battle did not mean the end of the war. And there were another four years of grueling campaigning in Swedish Pomerania. The Swedes were kicked out of Pomerania, but Frederick Wilhelm's forces were weak and overstretched when the Dutch, the Emperor, and the Danish all made peace with Louis XIV right behind his back. Ouch. This meant that Brandenburg could not face the powerful might of France by itself, and they were forced to sue for peace. They had to give all of Western Pomerania back to the Swedes. This was sad for Brandenburg, as they did not really gain anything from the war. Well, apart from one thing. They gained respect. Finally, they were a regional power with which to be reckoned. They had an army of 45,000 men and a peacetime army of 30,000. This is amazing to think about if you remember how sorry a state they were in 1640 during the Thirty Years' War. This truly was the battle that created his title that he would be remembered by, the Great Elector. He was the only early modern ruler that would remain being called the Great. At the time, rulers called themselves the Great as if they were throwing candies away. There was Louis the Great of France. There was Leopold the Great of the Holy Roman Empire. There was Maximilian the Great of Bavaria. All of these men, even the Sun King, the Louis XIV, would not be remembered as the Great, but Frederick Wilhelm was. In my opinion, 
he absolutely deserved it. When he was given the keys of state in 1640, Frederick Wilhelm had no experience in government, and yet here he is, defeating the Swedes with his powerful and modern army. Amazing, isn't it? After his magnificent win at Fair Berlin, there was a small legal matter between himself and the Habsburg Emperor Leopold. See, Frederick Wilhelm was supposed to inherit three small territories in Silesia, in what is now Poland. Instead, the emperor said nope and claimed Silesia was an integral part of Bohemia. And Bohemia is, of course, now in the Czech Republic or Czechia. This will later become extremely important when 1740 hits and Frederick becomes the king in Prussia. Anyway, after the war, the old pendulum of Schaukelpolitik kept going back and forth as Frederick Wilhelm began to switch sides between the French, the Habsburgs, and the Dutch. Brandenburg even had the guts to say that they were in an alliance with France while they helped the hated Habsburgs in the Turkish siege of Vienna. That's right, the French were paying their ally, in quotations, Brandenburg, while Brandenburg was fighting with the Habsburgs, their enemy. And then the winged Tsars arrived in 1683 in the Turkish siege of Vienna. Coming down, they turned the tide. Go check that song out, When the Winged Hussars Arrived, by Sabaton. If you like heavy metal and history, then you will like their songs. Anyway, so, here we are, at the end of Frederick Wilhelm's illustrious 48-year reign. This is what the great elector said about himself to his legacy on his own deathbed. His reign had been, by God's grace, a long and happy one though difficult and full of war and trouble. Everyone knows the sad disorder the country was in when I began my reign. Through God's help, I have improved it, and respected by my friends and feared by my enemies. And as a bit of foreshadowing, I will read one last quote from the great elector from his political testament to his son. Take care that you do not keep a much too extensive court but reduce it on occasion. Always regulate the expenditures according to the revenues and have officials diligently render receipts every year. This will make a lot more sense when I discuss Frederick I, the first ever king in Prussia. That is where I shall have to leave you at. In 1688, in the final breaths of Frederick Wilhelm's glorious reign, he was the hardest worker in Prussian history and the founding father of what became Prussia. Without him winning the Battle of Fair Berlin, there is no Frederick the Great. Heck, there might not even be a Germany today. I am serious when I tell you that his reign was the most significant before Frederick the Great's own reign in regards to Prussian history. Thank you all for listening. Do not forget that I have a Patreon in the description, patreon.com slash alekavtikov. Again, that is patreon.com slash A-L-E-C-A-V-D-A-K-O-V. I appreciate all that you give. I believe I will conclude by quoting the song from one of my mom's favorite musicals, The Sound of Music, when I say, So long, 
Farewell. Auf Wiedersehen. Goodbye.